Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Zachary Colston. He said he wanted to kill Al-Qaeda, and I said, Brandon, you're going to need a lot of bullets to kill Al-Qaeda. And I shit you not, he looked me square in the eyes, and he said, not if I hit him in between the eyes. That and more. But before that, I want to remind everyone that thestorystudio.org is where to go to find our storytelling school. Many of the story coaches and producers who work for Risk are faculty members at the Story Studio. We teach workshops on storytelling for performance, storytelling for the stage, storytelling for personal growth. I'm thinking of creating an entirely new workshop to present over there soon as well, an online Zoom workshop. And we do custom-tailored corporate workshops for businesses or organizations of all sizes. So if you've been thinking of doing any kind of storytelling training, and by the way, this kind of training is not even the sort of thing that you have to end up doing in public. You know, you can work on your own stories in your own journaling or memoir writing just for your own self and maybe never even release it to the public. You know, maybe the sort of thing that you explore with your therapist or with your friends and family. There are all kinds of ways to employ the principles and the techniques out of which narratives grow to make sense of things and explore your past and explore your present and possible futures. So if you've been holding off on going over there and checking it out, check it out. Come find us at thestorystudio.org. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable to You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison and this is the juju orchestra behind me now and we're calling this week's episode kindness times we were kind to others times that others were kind to us and last but not least, times we were kind to ourselves. In a little bit, we're going to hear a story that 
fits that bill, that kindness toward oneself idea, Nina Moses, she used to be on staff with us way back in the day when Brisk first started. So it was a treat to have Nina back telling a story at Caveat. And don't forget the next Risk live show at Caveat is on February 17th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. And tickets will also be available for seeing the show via live stream. Fantastic cast, and we're so happy to be back on stage. That will be the day right after my birthday. So we can celebrate that, too. Tickets are always at risk-show.com slash tour. And again, that's February 17th, the next Risk Live show at Caveat. Now, before Nina, we're going to hear the first Risk appearance ever by Zachary Colston. This is a story Zachary shared a few years back in Los Angeles at the Risk Live show out there. You can find him on Instagram at Zachary Colston. Here he is now with a story we call Brother to Brother. My name is Zachary Colston. That's spelled Z-A-C-K-R-Y. And if you're wondering why that sounds like it's misspelled, it's because it is. <laughs> it's 100% misspelled. When I was born, my dad couldn't really uh, read or write at a strong level, and he just tried to sound it out, and that's what he came up with. <laughs> and my mom had just given birth, so she just let him have that, I guess. <laughs> she didn't fucking spell check it. Uh, see, when they met, they were in their 20s, my mama was a waitress at Caro's which is like a neglected Denny's. <laughs> She's a waitress. She didn't own it. My dad uh, was a Marine, and uh, he would go on to serve in Desert Storm. But now my dad works in an auto body shop, and my mama is a prison guard. And uh, my dad's dad is a policeman, and my mama's dad is in the Coast Guard. And I grew up in a Bruce Springsteen song. <laughs> <laughs> when I was eight, I was in a factory in New Jersey, no Like a lot of white trash families, we bounced around a lot. We lived in like a little one-stoplight town in Oregon where we would go on road trips to Walmart and little cities in California that many of you have probably peed at on your way to nicer places. (laughs) And then uh, we lived at a trailer park in Reno, which is a little like putting chocolate syrup on a brownie. (laughs) Either one of those would be white trash if they were standing alone. I don't know why we had to do both. Uh... But that's where my little brother was born. I'm four years older than him. His name's Brandon, B-R-A-N-D-E-N. Because <laughs> he couldn't figure it out in four years. Uh, we didn't scrape plates growing up. You know, like things got pretty tough. We were bouncing around from apartment to apartment and all that fun stuff. I remember one time specifically, we finally got a house. It was like a big deal. We had a place to go all the time. Then my pops lost his job and... The house was foreclosed, like real quick, and uh, he filed for bankruptcy, and we didn't know where we were going to go, and like food started getting a little scarce, you know, like we'd go to bed kind of hungry sometimes, and then I walked home one day, and there was a big footprint on the front of the door, and the door was like caved in in the middle, and I walked in, and all my video games were gone, all my CDs were gone, and my little brother's like Game Boy and stuff. And then I walked in the bathroom, and we had a little dog named Spaz. And uh, Spaz was in a cage, safe and sound with food and water. And I was like, that's a little, it's the kindest robber ever. <laughs> he spared my dog's life, but not my young Jeezy CD. What a sweetheart. <laughs> and I started thinking, I was like, oh, I wonder. So that night I went in my dad's shoe rack. I grabbed one of each of his shoes, and I lined them up against the shoe print. And one of them lined up pretty well. <laughs> I asked him about it later, and I was like, hey, Dad, was that you? He, like, turned really slow, like he was in The Sopranos, and he went, no. (laughs) So case closed on that one. (laughs) But that's, uh, that's the kind of environment me and my brother were growing up in. I never really identified with it. I just always kind of felt like a black sheep, but my brother leaned right into it. I mean, it started when we were really young. Like, we'd be in the bathtub playing with, like, green army men. 
and he'd be like setting up tactical advantages with the army men. He'd be like, no, the sniper goes on the shower head. He's got to, he's got to perch. And I, and I would just like have two army men and I'd be like, if I ever get out of this, I'm marrying Sandra as soon as I get home. I had like elaborate backstories. He's like, put him down. And over time, those got like more significant. Like we, we had similarities. We both played football for 10 years, but we played the game very differently. My little brother was old school, and he just wanted to go out there and hit and defend people. One time in high school, his kicker on his team, somebody cheap-shotted him like way after the whistle. If you don't know football, a kicker's not even really a football player. They're like a soccer player with a helmet. They're <laughs> defenseless. And I remember watching it, and I saw my brother's little skinny body sprinting across the field as the other team's walking to the huddle, and he just clocked the dude who did it after the whistle. Like tore his helmet off, started punching him, and he got ejected. Standing ovation. <laughs> Where I grew up, that was super dope. The only time I ever got flagged in football was uh, when I front flipped into the end zone one time and did a little dance. <laughs> and it was like all hips. <laughs> it was like, like I saw Prince do it. I was like, ever seen Under the Cherry Moon, bitch? <laughs> but that's, that's what I wanted to do. I liked entertaining. I liked making people laugh. I didn't want to be tough, and I couldn't be tough. Like, even when I like, talked to girls in elementary school, I couldn't be tough or suave. I remember one time there was this little girl named Bailey. I had the biggest crush on her. She had like a straight bowl cut. <laughs> she looked like Scout in To Kill a Mockingbird. I could never get through to her. I wasn't tough enough. But one day I stuck two crayons in my nose. And I went up to her and I went, <laughs> Killed her. And I was like, that's the feeling I want. So that's what I chased. So I was like, oh, I'm going to go out and I want to make people laugh and I want to do that, you know? But I also wanted to changed like the paradigm for my family because you know it was always military all the time nobody had ever gone to college and I wanted to be the first person to go to college so I worked really hard I got good grades I got into a college remember when I was studying for the SATs I told my dad and he said what are the SATs <laughs> I don't even know if you could spell that <laughs> um, but I got in and I was so fucking proud of myself and right before I graduated my little brother enlisted in the marines and my family was like way prouder of him, or so I felt. And then I got really mad at myself because I was like, why are you jealous of your little brother? You should be happy for him. It was a really weird, conflicted emotion to feel, you know? Because like they, they, they went to my shit, like I did plays, but they would call intermission halftime and like the understudies were, <laughs> were backups, you know? Like there was a little disconnect. So I wanted to understand my brother's point of view, so I went and I met him at our house one day. We had a real man-to-man -man talk. I went and grabbed one of my mama's, a couple of my mama's Bud Light Platinums out of the fridge, which are like, those are like white trash IPAs. They're just an excuse to put more alcohol in the same bottle. We sat down and I just wanted to know, I said, Brandon, what are your goals for the military? And he looked at me and he said, I want to kill Al-Qaeda. He's going to basic training in two weeks. He said he wanted to kill Al-Qaeda. And I said, Brandon, you're going to need a lot of bullets to kill Al-Qaeda. And I shit you not. He looked me square in the eyes, and he said, not if I hit him in between the eyes. <laughs> he thought there was a dude named fucking Albert Kada <laughs> who was just like, what's up? My name's Albert, but you could call me Al. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm a huge Paul Simon fan, and that's not even my worst crime. Like, he thought, have you met my daughter Isis? Like, what the fuck? It was crazy, you know, and I, it scared the shit out of me, right? Because he's going off. In two weeks, he's going whether I like it or not. And he wanted to be in the shits. Like, he was going to be an anti-tank missileman. He was going to see combat. And that conversation did not ease my anxieties. So anyway, I graduate college. And right as I graduate, I moved to L.A. to pursue my dream because I thought, you know, fuck it. And my brother gets deployed. And within six months of his deployment, he's in Syria. And he's in the shit, seeing combat. And I was terrified for him because I, I didn't know if he could handle himself. I'd always been the big brother. And now he's out there by himself, defending himself. And I didn't know if he was being shot at, if he was shooting. I would write him all the time and he couldn't write back. He didn't have access to internet. He didn't have anything. And I remember one time I was like on YouTube and a Tim McGraw song came up, like a live version of a Tim McGraw song. And I just wept. Faith Hill is married to Tim McGraw, and there's no way she's ever wept to a Tim McGraw song. 
I was so scared. And at the same time, everything that I did, like, felt really insignificant. He's out there, like, trying to free Syrian children from ISIS and, and seeing men die. And I was, you know, in a Burger King audition being told I didn't have, like, hamburger energy and <laughs> writing kooky waiter sketches. And it just, it didn't feel like I even deserved to be scared for him. And then I got a letter in the mail from him. First of all, he misspelled unless. Chip off the old block. But the whole letter was just about how proud he was of me. He was in the middle of a war zone, and he was really proud of me. And he wrote like about how he tells all his friends that I went to college and that everybody in his platoon thought that was so cool. And he was like, um, I bet you're in a Transformers movie already. <laughs> <laughs> and it changed everything for me. And it felt like, yeah, okay, maybe what I'm doing isn't significant. I'm not defending lives, you know, fighting or whatever, but like that it matters. And, and it's so cool that my little brother looked up to me. I, I thought all along that nobody understood me, but really I just, I didn't understand my parents. There was a disconnect, but my brother was this nice link between us. He understood both of us and he like allowed us to sort of understand each other. And he gets out of the Marines in eight days and he told me he wants to go to University of Nevada, Las Vegas with a GI Bill. <laughs> So he'll be the second Colson to ever go to college. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, for Brandon. And he told me he's really worried about the schoolwork. And I told him that it's okay because now he knows who Al-Qaeda is. story about the first time I fell in love. December 2020. It only took me 35 years in a global pandemic, but I got there. <laughs> if you're wondering, Nina, what you've been doing this whole time? Part of it is that I have fibromyalgia. I have an autoimmune thyroid condition. So most of the time I'm exhausted, in pain, just totally uncomfortable. And I spent a lot of my 20s trying to get better and keep up. I saw acupuncturists, I changed my diet, I cut out gluten and dairy, which is the same recipe as cutting out fun, in case you're worried. I mean, with that diet, I didn't want to go to, like, out to eat at a restaurant. Why would I want to go on a date where I had to explain, like, no, don't worry, it's not an allergy, I'm not on a diet, it's way worse than that. <laughs> And, you know, I didn't want to have anybody over my apartment because I only had the energy to cook or do the dishes, which is fine. You can just hide them in the freezer. But I also had just stuff all over my floor. Every time I came into my apartment, I just, anything I had on my shoulders, I just dropped. You know, it was like, that's where that goes. <laughs> my joints, my shoulders hurt, my hips hurt. I couldn't hinge at the hips. And, of course, if you can't hinge at the hips, getting laid's not that easy either. <laughs> I mean, you, it's not impossible, but it's not ideal when you're just like, no, 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 I like it. <laughs> I like it, I like it, I like it. <laughs> my body hates it, but I like it. So that was my deal. And then COVID happened. And all of a sudden, the restaurants were closed. People were staying inside. No one could go anywhere. And I thought, the playing field has leveled. <laughs> so I got on a dating app and I matched with a guy. We're going to call him Vlad. 
because his because his real name did kind of make him sound like I'm Russian gangster. I'd break kneecaps, but in reality he had a normal sized neck, and he was a little bit more <laughs> lean and Jewish like me. And I really liked the fact that we were both New York Jews. I told my friends that seeing him was like. Being in the movie Annie Hall, but we were both playing the Woody Allen character, <laughs> which sounds excruciating, and it it was, but it was also comforting and familiar, you know. And I just, it was so great to meet someone as neurotic as I am. So we talked on the phone for two months before we were able to meet in person. And for our first date, we met. I was going to say face to face, but it was like eyes to eyes, because we both had our masks on. Downtown in Battery Park, at a mall, and uh, it's weird to flirt with a mask on. It's weird to try and get to know someone because you want to make eye contact, but you also want to listen. So there was just a constant turning. Until finally, I just took his cold, clammy hands in mine and I wrapped them around my waist. We watched the sunset and kind of touched our heads together because that's what you can do when you can't breathe on each other. It was actually really nice and kind of cute, but new and surprising and weird for me because I'm not a hugger. In in theory, I'm a hugger. In practice, I'm in pain. So most of the time, it's Nina. Do you need a hug? Yes, but I do not want one. Please do not touch me. <laughs> so this was, you know, new. So there was a second date. For our second date. He picked me up in his car and took me to a drive-in movie theater to see Airplane, which he thought was a surprise, until I unzipped my backpack and pulled out two drinks labeled "TSA approved" and "Surely you can't be serious, Temples." <laughs> I also made him tiny little airplane wings, like a little pin. It was our second date, and I was already crafting. That's how you know I was in deep. And, you know, it paid off. When he saw those wings, he was flying high. Okay, I'm sorry. You're welcome. <laughs> and after that, I I wanted to keep seeing him, but I was not ready for him to see my place, and I needed more time on neutral ground. So, luckily, his brother had an apartment in Brooklyn near me and a girlfriend. So he agreed to go to his girlfriend's place, and we used his apartment kind of like a dating Airbnb. And Vlad cooked to my dietary, you know, specifications, and he folded my paper towel napkin just so, you know. And he asked me if I wanted to stay over. And at first, I was like, "It's a trap!" And <laughs> don't do it. Don't get close. But I knew also that I had been very clear about my boundaries. It's not like he was asking me to like. It was actually sleep. He wanted to be near me, and I I wanted to be near him. So I put on one of his t-shirts and I got in bed with him, and I relaxed and I said to myself, Nina, okay, like you got this. This is intimacy. We're intimacizing. <laughs> and then I got a leg cramp. Do you know in Monty Python that scene where the knight has his arm sliced off and he goes, "It's just a flesh wound." <laughs> I sat up in bed and I was like, "It's just a leg cramp," but it was really, really bad, and I had to leap out, you know, and stand and walk it out, and I couldn't talk. I was just so overwhelmed and focused on the pain, and I knew it was bad because I could see he looked scared and powerless, and the pain passed. And then it started to dawn on me that no one I cared about had seen my pain up close like that before, and I lost it. I just started crying, and he hugged me, and I could not get the words out, even though I knew exactly what I was thinking. I had this secret in my throat that I had been hiding for a long time. I finally got up the courage, and I said. I feel broken. I feel like I'm like I'm physically broken, and I don't know how to be with someone like this. What am I supposed to say? Like, yeah, you like this? You want this? I don't even want this. But 
he wiped my tears and he rubbed my leg and he said, you don't have to hide your pain from me. You know, you can share how you're feeling. And I did feel like I'd been carrying a weight and he'd split it in two and taken half. And uh, I think what I was feeling, even though it was a foreign emotion, was relief. Which, I know this is going to sound weird, but it's kind of erotic, the feeling of relief. Or it can be, especially when you have all these dark feelings all the time. I was just like, I have room for joy now. Uh, I... (laughs) You know, I have room for the good feelings. And although I will tell you that I'm a lady, we had a nice night. (laughs) So yeah, so we started seeing each other pretty seriously after that. And for the first time, I started thinking about my future, which I don't know if anyone understands this feeling, but when you're sick, you don't really think about your future. You, You can't envision tomorrow. You're just trying to get through today. But I started dreaming little things, you know, like... I play the flute and he plays the piano and I dug up my old flute and piano duets and I thought maybe one day we'll play together. Maybe I'll learn Russian. I could see him dreaming too. He said something like maybe, um, you know, at one point I might leave New York and I picture myself doing that with you there. And then strangely enough, it was his fears that started to wear on the relationship. He was confused about what he wanted to do with his career and I just found myself routinely clawing my way to kind of dig him out of the holes that he was in. And I felt guilty, like, am I not being supportive enough? But I said, I can turn the gas off, but you have to be the one to take your head out of the oven. (laughs) Which, I don't know, yeah, I thought it was good, too. So, (laughs) But then he started to waffle about our relationship and said... Oh, I feel like something's not right. Sorry, I don't mean to make him sound like a Neanderthal. (laughs) He said, I feel like something's not right. That doesn't mean everything's wrong. And I was like, what? (laughs) I tried to get him to articulate what he wanted, you know? You want to see other people? Go ahead. But it's COVID. You still have to get tested. (laughs) But he couldn't quite tell me. And... I was pissed because I was like, you did this, you know, like you asked me to be your girlfriend. You pushed this forward. I was the one who had reservations and I'm finally jumping in with both feet. I need you to be too. But it was a crack that couldn't be repaired. So it ended and I will be honest. Yes, I am sad and I miss him and I think he made a terrible mistake, but Honestly, I'm, I'm okay. Here's why. I know that it didn't end because I didn't show up. You know, I pulled the curtain all the way back and I let myself be seen and I was present as my honest self. There was something about COVID for me that when it swept through New York, I think we all had this feeling of really wanting to be near each other, but being afraid, you know, to get closer. So it was really amplified for me. And I got the opportunity, I think, to confront some demons, I guess. I'm thinking now that I might always be a little bit broken. I might always feel physically broken, but I do know that there are parts of me that I can heal. Thank you.
This is Risk. This is Ingrid Michelson behind me now. And we just heard from Nina Moses. You can find Nina on Instagram at Nina underscore Moses. And before that, we heard a little something from the one and only Team America. Folks, it is absolutely essential in order to keep risk running that we have the financial support of our fans. And there's an amazing way we do it over at patreon.com slash risk, which is that we give you a ton of amazing bonus content over there if you become a member. Now, the latest perk is that if you're a member for the $5 or more tier, you can attend story recording sessions. You know, we sometimes have those radio style stories with the music and sound design. Well, you can be watching on Zoom and reacting and be a part of an audience for the behind the scenes recording of a story that you'll later hear on the show. Also, the latest bonus story that we've uploaded over there at Patreon is from Rose. Everybody gets out of the tent and runs outside and starts dry heaving and vomiting and shitting their pants. To you're beautiful, you're beautiful, and I couldn't fucking believe it. That and so many more bonus stories and check-ins and all kinds of other content at Patreon.com/slash/risk. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your 
your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Our final story on this week's episode is so very special. And Lindsay Miller... The storyteller here is such a wonderful, fascinating person. I really highly encourage you to look Lindsay up on Instagram at the Lindsay Miller, but also her book, North Korea Like Nowhere Else, is so unique and wonderful. It's a book of stories and photographs from the two years that Lindsay spent over there and you know a a little bit of that is also in this next story one of the newest members of our team hope brush did such a lovely job editing this one here is lindsey miller now with the story we call where goodbye is forever It was hot. It was the kind of hot that is so heavy, it drenches every inch of your skin in disgusting, sour sweat. And that is how I remember North Korean summers. On this particular day, it was a sticky summer afternoon in Pyongyang. I was walking along a dry, cracked tarmac road, which was always the better option than the scarred pavements, scattered in randomly sized cobbles and holes, which made everyone who walked on them look like they were staggering home drunk from a night out and probably decking it into the dirt. I could barely hear the sound of my own footsteps from the noise of the screaming cicadas buzzing in the trees lining the road of the compound. When I first arrived in Pyongyang, they used to make me so annoyed I'd rather just stay indoors than have to go outside and deal with the incessant noise. But after two years, their shrieking had sort of sunk into the background and I didn't really notice it anymore, only that it was a sign of summer. And that happened with a few things. There were few noises that could cut through the wall of the Shikada song Mr. Roo's laugh was one of them. Mr. Roo was a North Korean man, probably in his 60s. He'd spent most of his working life at the international compound in the Munsudong area of Pyongyang. That was where I lived. You see, I was in Pyongyang accompanying my husband on a diplomatic posting, and so most international aid organisations and embassies, etc., were contained to this specific area of the city. Not all, but most. Living in North Korea was not something I ever thought would be part of my life. Before I arrived, all I knew about the country was whatever I devoured in books or documentaries, which mostly focused on the regime, the leaders and the politics of the place. You know, missiles, goose-stepping soldiers, crowds crying and clapping at the latest missile tests. The stuff that makes the shiny headlines that we're used to seeing and which, looking back on it now, I was probably quite desensitized to. But it didn't take me long to realize that what I thought I knew about the country and its people really amounted to absolutely nothing. And as it turned out, that place and my experiences there were so much more complicated and emotionally charged than I could have ever imagined. Mr. Roo was a major part of that discovery. His job was to oversee teams from a local repair shop and handyman department who were regularly called out on jobs across the compound. They would do painting, repairs, if you had a problem with your car or if you needed something fixed. 
Mr. Roo was on it. He was there, cape and all, metaphorically. Um, and he was there and he'd sort it out for you. The first time I saw Mr. Roo, he'd just finished repairing the car of an official who lived nearby. And he was running a cloth over the car bonnet. In his left hand was a plastic bottle, inside which was fresh petrol sloshing around, which he squirted onto the car as polish. The pungent, sour smell of the petrol whipped up into the damp air, along with the smouldering smoke emanating from the white cigarette dangling from the corner of his mouth. You know, classic North Korean health and safety. If it's flammable, you should light a cigarette near it. I was in another car which pulled into the smaller compound where I was going to live and he saw me pull up. He had a big smile on his face and started flinging both arms over his head and waving to me. Now I had absolutely no idea who this guy was but he'd been clearly told about me. His radiant and ridiculous smile made me laugh as soon as I saw him which calmed my nerves and gave me something to think about other than Holy shit, I am actually in North Korea. As I stepped out of the car, Mr. Roo ran towards me and shook my hand excitedly, and my whole arm jiggled up and down. Annyeong ka, he repeated over and over again, and I noticed that his hands were weathered with brown sunspots. But despite his age, he's buzzing, he's got so much youthful energy and excitement and I was so flattered that he seemed to be pleased to see me. And I had absolutely no Korean, so I just put my hand on my chest and I said my name. And he tried to say my name, but after several attempts, he just started laughing, just went, English, no, no, no. And he just pointed to himself, said, Rue, I said, Lindsay, and he patted my shoulder. And his booming, hearty laugh, which was so ridiculous, it sounded like a combination between Muttley the Dog and Robbie Coltrane. It resonated around the compound. And I just remember being so surprised that he was so relaxed. I had assumed North Korean people were serious and uptight, that they were brainwashed robots, soldiers of the socialist revolution with a deep hatred of foreigners. But Mr. Roo wasn't. He was kind. He was smiling. It didn't take me long to realise what an ignorant and simplistic view of people I had. One of many ugly realisations about the power of my assumptions. Mr. Ru and I bumped into each other regularly over those two years that I lived in Pyongyang. And sometimes he was on his way to or from work. Sometimes he was heading out for a job. And sometimes he was in our compound overseeing some job or another. And aside from that laugh, he loved to smoke. Those are the two things I remember most about him. And it was on his smoking breaks or a walk that he just always filled with the opportunity to take a cigarette that we'd talk. And even though we barely had any language between us, we were able to have conversations about family relationships and sometimes politics. He'd tell me about how he thought reunification with South Korea would happen at some point, but not in his lifetime. He'd tell me about his life, about his family, and we felt so at ease in each other's company, and I felt like he genuinely cared for me. And particularly in the 2017 nuclear crisis, which was a really scary time, Donald Trump's telling Kim Jong-un and how he's going to throw fury and fire at North Korea and North Korea, Kim Jong-un's throwing insults, calling Donald Trump a dotard. Meanwhile, we were all sitting there going, how long have we got left to live? And he'd regularly ask me how I was doing. And he just lifted my spirits. He was silly, kind and gentle. We'd play pranks on each other around the place, you know, jump out from behind walls and all kinds of things. And he just, he reminded me that not every Korean saw me as someone to be avoided. And while we demolished bags of sweets and he demolished packets of cigarettes, we'd talk about his retirement, how he wasn't looking forward to it. He wanted a house in the mountains. He wanted to live in the countryside. He hated the city and he was a country lad at heart. He'd been born in the countryside and that's where he wanted to be for the rest of his life. And there were so many things that we couldn't talk about because it just wasn't safe to. I wanted to know 
how his family had coped after the war. Like, what had he seen? He would have lived through the famine of the 90s. How had his family coped through the Kims? Did he know of anyone? Had he himself had his house searched? Did he had anything confiscated? Did he know someone that had been tortured and executed? Did he seen an execution? I mean, it was highly likely. I just would never know because we couldn't talk about it. Similarly, he couldn't ask me about anything real beyond little tidbits here and there. And instead, we just had to make do with what we had. We were caught in the middle of this huge shit situation, just trying to make the best of it and build some kind of relationship. But despite the environment around us, that consistent connection of kindness and compassion kept me going in a world that made me doubt everything. Even when he took every opportunity to laugh at me for my terrible Korean or whatever else, he broke the isolation and the loneliness I felt living there. Living there in a world where I felt like no one else could understand, no one at home would ever understand. The loneliness that stemmed from the effects of the regime's control and its impact on my social relationships, old and new. I was so grateful to have a friend and to be a friend for someone else. So it was on that day that I saw Mr. Roo from afar and I thought something was up because usually he was on his own walking around the compound, job to job or whatever. But that day he was standing on the gardens by the side of the pavement, surrounded by a small group of men also dressed in white shirts like he was. But they were all patting him on the back, offering cigarettes to him, drawing on their tabs and saying congratulations to him. And when I realised what this was, my stomach just sank like someone had dropped a concrete brick down my throat. I felt my face and body sting and seize up. And I just thought, no, not now. I'm not ready, not now. But I knew that was it. And this is the thing I was scared of, the thing I was dreading. I knew that this was the moment I was going to have to say goodbye to him. But this wasn't a normal goodbye. Anywhere else in the world, if you are separated, there are ways to keep in touch usually. Social media, email, phone calls, letters. There's always something. But things didn't work like that in North Korea. There's no such thing as reconnecting. This was it. This was all you got. You had your time. You got to know someone. And then it ended. Severed. Blocked. Done. I used to compare the experience of saying goodbye, like saying farewell to a loved one who's dying. But that doesn't even begin to describe the anger and the pain and the grief that I feel. Because when someone dies, that's a definite. They are gone and you go through your life knowing that theirs has ended in whichever way it happened, and you deal with it. But in this case, they're not dead. That person you care about is still very much alive, or in as far as you know, they're alive. If they live happily until they die, you'll never know. If their house is searched and the police find something and they're executed or sent to a camp or tortured, you'll never know. You just have to spend the rest of your life wondering and hoping and there is nothing you can do. And I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. I almost wanted the disappearing act that I'd experienced before with other North Korean friends who are part of my life one minute, assigned a new job and practically disappeared overnight. I mean, that was hard. But weirdly, that was easier than trying to decide what the hell you say to someone when you know you're never going to see them again. When you know that they're going through something and are going to have to continue dealing with that thing that you can never talk about. So I tried to think of what to say and I'd gone to a Korean friend and asked him to help me translate something. And I saw him, walked up to him in the street and just thought, I'm just going to have to do it. Just just, just say, say your thing that you've prepared. That'll be, that'll be fine. 
And it was just a general couple of sentences. It wasn't anything too deep. I only had people standing around them. So I tried to say thank you for being so kind, keeping me safe, and I hope you and your family have a happy, healthy life. I mean, that's what I meant to say, um, but I probably didn't remember it properly, but I tried. And Mr. Rose, he always did, as I said, when I tried to talk Korean, spoke, he just pointed at me and just laughed that absolutely ridiculous laugh. And I laughed too, not knowing what I'd actually said, but just hoping that I hadn't left him with an insult. And he put his hand on my shoulder, he thanked me, he bowed his head, and before I knew it, I was going in and giving him a hug. And I hadn't planned on hugging him, and I pro- knew probably shouldn't have. It was in front of other Koreans. I didn't think culturally it would have been appropriate, but I couldn't stop myself. And my worry about being inappropriate just quickly went away as he patted me on the back, just as my granddad used to do. And I could feel the warmth of his body press into my chest and his neck touch mine. I could smell the cigarette smoke in his hair and his glasses touched the side of my head and I just savoured every last second with my friend. And then I let go and walked away, smiled and waved as he waved back in the same way he greeted me a year ago while polishing the car. As I watched him smile and hold my gaze for the last time, I wondered if Mr. Rue would live the rest of his life in peace. Would the changes happening now turn into anything real? Or would he live out his years not knowing? I felt my body seize up again under the umbrella of the buzzing, screaming trees, boiling vibrating with anger and pain shooting through my veins with nowhere for it to go. The last year of my time in North Korea was never the same. I missed him, and in a bigger sense, saying goodbye to those I cared about and leaving the place itself never got any easier. It only became darker, more difficult, and more complicated. But the light of connection could and never can be dimmed by any force. It was and will always be there. I think about Mr. Rue every day and because of that, he will always continue to be the constant in my life until we meet again. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things, feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, You must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. 
only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. For this week's episode, folks, this is Madison Cunningham behind me now, and we just heard a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye. Oh my goodness, so beautiful. It's from the book Everything Comes Next. That recording was produced by The On Being Project with music by Chris Hegel. You know, I was saying just a little bit ago, I was hoping to have more Palestinian voices on the show. And that's one way to do it. Well, Palestinian-American <laughs> to get a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye on the show that way. And before that, we heard from the wonderful Lindsay Miller. Like I was saying before, Lindsay has a beautiful book called North Korea Like Nowhere Else, Two Years of Living in the World's Most Secretive State. It's not just stories, but a lot of beautiful photographs. Just such a beautifully put together book. And for more on Lindsay, go to lindsaymiller.co.uk. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Folks, don't forget that next caveat show is on February 17th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. You can also get tickets, not just for the in-person show, but for the live stream at risk-show.com slash tour. And did you know that you can hire me personally for storytelling training? Come find me at kevinallison.com and look us up on our socials on Twitter, Instagram, and and Facebook, we're at Risk Show, and on Twitter and Instagram, I am at the Kevin Allison. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. No, I'll never lose affection for people and things that went before. I know I'll often stop and think about. 